part one. All right, we're going to do the famous scripture that we all know and love. It's Romans 13.1, the government. <laughs> all authority. All right, I've been waiting for this for how many years? 10 years, 12 years? Yesterday I've been working on this with notes for quite some time. And Anyway, I outlined what I wanted to do, but this first part is our introduction. And I'm going to say Romans 13, verse 1, usually... When you hear it preached, or at least every time I've heard it preached, I've never liked it. I think they do a terrible job. And so let me frame it. I would say that it's childish interpretations. They go about as deep as, uh, you know, when you're, oh, the cops are out to get me. They're going to get me. They're going to get me. They look at this verse about as deep as that. And it's using a concept of, if you would agree with this, all adult children should obey their parents. Well, let me just say the issue's a little more complex than that, correct? So when we're dealing with this, you usually hear something to the tune of drive 55 miles an hour. That's about where people are with what they do with this verse. So kind of childish, but let's take it further. More than childish, it's terrible, and I believe it's anti-biblical how people use Romans 13. So let's back this up and see what we can do with it. Now, maybe it's because I just heard a sermon and it wasn't just telling me to drive 55 that bothered me. It was the fact that they used it to tell me to submit to Fauci. (laughs) It was just a little bit more than I could handle for an unelected official, how you could work him into a lesson and tell me I had to submit to him. So, I was going to say, it just feels like people just get afraid of this verse and they just spout off things without considering what the Bible is truly telling us here. And I would tell you this even in sermon interpretation, the ability of cows to be able to eat grass and spit out sticks, but they're smart enough for that, that sometimes you just have to spit out a stick here and there. So my rule of scriptural interpretation is if you want to do it, it's usually your flesh. If you don't want to do it, it's usually God. (laughs) So now I'm joking, but if something doesn't feel right to your spirit, there might be something you're missing. Because truth has that ability when it goes inside of you, you're just like, yes, this is right. And so you're going to see me come from a perspective that government is a lot like people. Sometimes you get some of the best people you can ever imagine. Loyal, considering you're good. And then sometimes you don't. You're just kind of shocked what you get. Well, government is a collection of those people. And so let's look at how God deals with government. Because the beauty of it is God is involved in government. It's his idea. So welcome to the world of the thing that I don't like being taught. This is basically the underground current. This is what I don't like behind Romans 13.1 of the interpretation. It's basically they use this verse to teach passivism. Just take it. And that's the problem that I have trouble with is being passive with government. I can tell you this from God's people's point of view. From living in the land with natural Jews, there is not much passive about Jews. (laughs) If you watch how they fight in government, it makes us pale in comparison. So this is written in that context of not inviting a pacifist, a pacifism, a do-nothing, just whatever you are, just grin and take it. That is not the context of how this should be interpreted in your life. 
So it's kind of interesting to me that I've been working with notes for quite some time. And so Samantha fixed us lunch and uh, she was talking about her class at Howard Payne. And, you know, you kind of think of Paul wrote it to a persecuted, terrible time in history with Nero. You know, all these people that are bloggers, well, what they do with the context of this, they're making an assumption you know, they just tell the one thing they know about this guy, and then they just say, this is who Paul was writing to. But the historical context of this from Dr. Claiborne's political theory class was he cleared it up. And thanks to Samantha last night, us working through it, we're double-checking the facts. And what you want to know is that surprisingly, Romans 13 in the letter to the Roman church was written before all the chaos with Nero. But Claiborne was making the point that when you look at the date that this Romans 13 was written, it was written at the earliest in 53 AD. Scholars will take it all the way to 55 to 57 AD. Well, during this time, Nero actually had some years before what I call insanity, his pre-insane years. Nero was so popular that even scholars are going back today and trying to doubt some of the stories that are told about him. So Paul wrote it to a calm period of time. This is not what you're thinking of when you hear the word Nero. Now Nero was the adopted son. His mother was kind of his problem. So he did away with his mother <laughs> in 59. His mother was insane first, but with this being written in 55 through 57, the insanity didn't show up until 59 when he killed her and after that. The general population was very happy, or at least the common people were very happy with him, and that's what explains some of the history that they're looking into. Now, personally, I'm not ready to give up Nero's craziness, so I'm going to tell you that the craziness happened in the years that followed 59, that his insanity and his rule began actually in around 62. His parties, the great fire, his wanting to be a musician in the middle of the fire while he burned down Rome. The Jewish revolts came in at 66 through 73, and he managed to die at 30. It was a terrible reign. But Paul actually addressed Roman Christians in an era of time called the Pax Romana, which simply means Roman peace. This was written during a time when they were just collecting taxes from people they had conquered, and they weren't at war with anyone. So when he writes this in context, you see Paul writing just as a Roman citizen. He was writing to a country that had a history that could be in a republic government. That they had in their earlier years before Christ, they'd had a constitution, they had officials, and they had the consent of the people. And so Paul addresses it in that sort of a time. When you look at it, Paul being the world traveler that he was, he probably saw the difference in economic and political instability in other places and was looking at the Roman political scene and wrote to the Roman Christians in the city and told them, look, work with your government. And so it's interesting how Paul puts a stance here that causes a scripture to go through history in such an unbelievable way, submitting to every evil form of government I liked what Sam wrote up. Now, I don't know if she came up with this on her own, but she said when Jesus talked about government, he was dismissive. In other words, he was like, look, 
Texas, you kind of like Benjamin Franklin. There's two things that are sure. <laughs> One of them being Texas. So he was like, just go and catch a fish, get a coin, and pay the taxes for you and me. I always get tickled it didn't encompass all the disciples, just Peter and, and Jesus. Another time he said, look on a coin, and if Caesar printed that coin, give it back to him. But you definitely owe God what belongs to him. And so you see Jesus telling you, just kind of be dismissive about your taxes. Do them and get on with what really counts in life, and that's the kingdom of heaven. So Paul comes along and takes Jesus' dismissive side of it, and he takes a submissive side. He goes different than how Jesus went on this. So the text in question has been seen some... They'll go as far as saying this is appalling betrayal to Jesus' anti-imperial message. Because Jesus preaches the kingdom of heaven as a challenge and actually an alternative to the kingdom of Caesar or Rome. This is what they say. Where actually, to me, Jesus preached the kingdom and Rome was the antichrist. It was the opposite. But this is just some of the far extreme ideas of why Paul did what he did. But it was like Paul allows himself to be elected by Caesar here in Rome. I'm not going to take that stance. But I want to point out to you that Jesus had a different way that he portrayed government. And Paul takes it in this opposite direction. So this was long before Nero was getting the Christians, dousing them in oil, making them human torches for his dinner parties. This was during a time when it was relatively calm. So in context of that, you understand what's written. But by the time you get to the Apostle John, there is a totally different flair than both Jesus and Paul in it. It's resistive <laughs> to every dictator and every evil form of government. Brought out by the term that we created or coined, resistive, Revelation 17. And you see John taking a very strong idea of Jezebel, who is a government figure, Balaam working with Barak, who is an outside force of foreign interference, and Babylon. How strong John is about what foreign craziness does inside of a godly kingdom. And so you see a different flair to this. So there's the difference between how Jesus portrayed the kingdom of heaven going over the earth, that in the beginning he came to save it. But by John, he's coming back as a military leader with the word of God written across him, a sword coming out of his mouth, and his enemies being conquered. So, government in scripture. I would say that the first seven verses that we will deal with in Romans 13 has been, needless to say, at least very influential in the course of law and of politics. Even with the sitting Supreme Court Justice Scalia, him quoting Romans 13 in one of his dissents. It has profoundly affected us in law and politics for 1,800 years, 1,850, 1,950 years. And if you can believe it, I know this will be hard for you to believe, Christians have disagreed with the powers of their government down through the ages. Can you imagine? So you take the verse... And you take what Christians have done with this passage, and there has been some strong Christian disagreement with how to interpret this verse on the basis of government. So positions taken by Christians through the centuries have been, from one extreme to another, complete surrender to demanding a godly form of government, 
and then actually to engage in a revolution against ruling authorities. And the hilarious part is they all cite this verse. So this is the basis that they all use. <laughs> so you might suggest that commentators are a little bit divided on the issue of what this exactly means. You can look at it in two seconds and see what way they're going. So you will have the group who has you completely over here submitting to every dictator and every evil form of government to people who are on the other side of saying absolutely that is not what this is saying. Now. I think you need to look through the scriptures and see where this comes from. How can they all base it on this verse? You would almost think that one group is totally making it up and the other group is solidly in the camp of what the scripture means. So in context, let's talk about what it means. Now, first of all, I'm going to take something and say it gives me a different feeling than any other commentary. In fact, they would go against me. But when you talk about government, I have a patriotic feeling. I am very happy. I think our government is a gift from God. I think a lot of prayer was put into it. And I think we have one of the best chances to have a government that reflects the nature of God. Is that being tested right now? Mm -hmm. Can we steward it? You've been given a part of your government. So I'm going to take a completely different stance on this verse and tell you that I hear the Star Spangled Banner as I begin to read these verses because I think this was God's idea for government when he flirted with his people and said, do you really want a king? Because I'd love to be your king. But the further America gets away from God being God and God being the king of kings, the less we're seeing God in government. But lo and behold, God is still working underneath now you see two nations that God has resurrected that stand against the backdrop of all other governments as saying God has his hand on history and that is America and Israel. And they're very unique how God birthed these two countries to stand in his presence. Now the forms of government are different but not extremely different. They have their own ideas of representation Israel is more like the Brits. And so we will look at the context of Paul speaking into government. Well, the first thing that I would say is don't assume that you should start with 13.1 as your beginning of the discussion. You need to go back into chapter 12 and see that the context that this is wrapped in is Paul is talking about love. And he's telling us that there's no weapon formed against love and goodness. Like, be good. People can't handle you if you're good. If they're evil and you give them good, it changes their mind. And so Paul's dissertation begins way before 13.1. He's telling you that love is above all. Now let me tell you how I think this fits in. Because in Romans 12, as it begins to give you the qualities of what your life would look like, if you walk differently, if you walk differently than how the world or the spirit of the world is, it's that idea that Jesus said, by your love, people are going to know you. They're going to know that you're a Christian by your love. But Jesus tells us something else. He says when the end comes, the problem is going to be lawlessness in Matthew 24, 12. And he said lawlessness is going to get so out of hand, so crazy, 
And he tells us the heart of the issue like he always does. Because your heart is going to grow cold. Because your love is going to turn off. You're not going to pull over and help someone in need. You don't want to get involved. It starts with the callousness, a numbness. And it goes full-blown to you not being a part of the solution anymore. Christians not having an answer. Christians not having an answer because they don't get involved anymore. So in this context, I'm going to say this is what we're talking about with government. The people, the world is going to become lawless. I bet they're going to start having rights one day in cities. I bet one day that they're going to have where they're burning them. I bet, I predict that according to this, that the police will not even be able to stand up against what's going to happen in our city. Do you think possibly in our peace-loving nation something like that could happen? Where we have been a melting pot of all the races and respect. Do you think one day the devil could get us so divisive that we would think our war is against genders? and races. Genders, I'm just taking it up to two. <laughs> and that, <laughs> Not the latest current number. But that there would be something that would explode in the world. This is where government comes in, my friend. And I want you to see if government, how Paul lays it out here, matches how our government is. So it's not the lawlessness. Actually, this verse is talking to you about the joys of being a law-abiding citizen. Not a lawless one, but a law-abiding. That's how you can know that you have the nature of God in you, if you have that. But there will be those that are rebellious and disrespectful, disobedient without any good cause related with the conscience, and without their disobedience being related to the consistency they have of preaching the gospel. If you find rebellion that has nothing to do with the gospel. It is not related to that issue. If you find the disrespect, all you find is a lawless, rebellious heart. And so in that context, Jesus said, it's going to take place that government will actually start breaking down. Like when lawlessness comes, one of the major functions of government has started to corrode. And this is where we find us in the days that we're living in. So in verse 1, let's take how I would look at what Paul is saying. Paul mentions God six times in Romans 13. So I would tell you, God should be a part of government. Thanks to the president who said, I pledge allegiance to the government. Is that what he said? One nation, one ethnic group under God. God being mentioned six times, showing that man cannot override God's authority. Government may rise up and try to be the chief authority. It may tell you in communist countries that there is no God and, and government is God. But this verse says, God has ordained authority. And what is God's ultimate purpose? If Jesus is going to tell us that our hearts grow cold because of the fact that we're numb because of all the lawlessness we're seeing, so therefore we're not actively involved in love anymore, then I shall dare to speak what God's motive is. But God's motive is one thing consistently through Scripture. God's motive is redemptive. And so the type of government you should have is redemptive. You know, it wasn't but a few years back in a prior government that a man stood up and said God can redeem a life and brought people that had been in prison out 
to declare that Jesus Christ had made the difference. That is good government, my friend. That has the motives of God of when a president of the United States gives God the platform and says that it is redemptive. Let this man speak to you. Government should believe not that humans can fix a person, not that humans can mess with your mind and make you another person, but that God can get down to his creation's heart and change a person from his inside out. So God's intentions are clearly stated that God's judgment is always in accordance with his mercy and his love. And his intentions are clearly for this purpose, to redeem man. So government is a reflection of his intentions. If you don't know that, then again, I'm telling you, you are at that childish ideal of all cops are bad. Government is evil. Why, when we express this, are we always talking about governments in terms of rogue governments, evil governments, of saying, hey, you know, all authority is in this Hitler's government. Not one time did I ever hear them say that Trump was good government or to apply this verse. They always use it for me to submit to Obama, Clinton. (laughs) And this is when the Christians pull the verse out. But the point of this verse is that government is an agent of God's glory. It's an agent of his redemption, of his mercy, of his justice. And so I would say this is my verse on authority to look at it of how God intended his authority to be on the earth. It is not a split in the ideal that churches are for mercy and government is for wrath. You can't take it and divide this up and say that believers are meant to be objects of mercy that are destroyed by the object of wrath. That is the opposite, complete opposite of what Romans 13, 1 through 7 says. It never has that idea that you're just this hapless, hapless love bunny rabbit that is being squashed by these demonic, satanic rulers. For some reason, Gentiles are obsessed with being martyred. Western Christians, Americans, always are thinking about being martyred. But it's always someone else, not them. (laughs) So they love the idea of it, but they never ever put it in context of what it would be like to be heavily persecuted. Romans 1 clearly sets it up that God is involved in your government. This is telling me God is not agnostic. What do I mean by that? It means that God did not make man and turn his back and said, let the state rule you. God did not turn his back on man and say government just has a function of his own. Like he didn't make man and withdraw from the human condition and just say, make it the best you can, man. That God is consistently interjecting himself in our history. That is the blessing of all authority being from him. So Paul does not write like the deist and said God is accessible who has ordained the government and then turns away and lets the government just function on its own, achieving its own purposes. No, Paul calls it to task here. And he said God is involved in government. And if a government chooses to go out from under God's authority, 
That rogue government does not have the nature of God in it. Let's read what that government should look like. Because it does not say, notice this, it does not say that the state itself is the authority. Watch this. If it had said, the state is its own authority, obey it. But this is how one commentary said, the state does not intrinsically contain within itself authority. Man, that is one of the strongest statements ever. That the government is not an authority unto itself. It is not intrinsically containing its own authority. There is no authority except God. Your government is not an authority unto itself. But you must understand that like what any authority on earth, it's always delegated authority. And government will answer to God. Clearly said in Matthew 25, there will be a judgment of nations and it will be sheep and goats. And if people have a problem when I tell them government is our servant, (laughs) and it is in our country, it serves at the pleasure of the people, and they get up and they walk out, there's a problem because there's a God who requires certain things of accountability of judgment. And so, it paints a picture of God being involved. For Romans 13:1 clearly sets it up that God is involved in your government. That God is involved in man at every level. How I would look at this verse, this authority that government wields is only a delegated authority. Thank goodness for a recompense that the wicked never went out. That ultimately bad does not win over good. That in the final moments that the Prince of Peace will come and set up his government on the earth. That it will be a wonderful time when Jesus shows us what it really should look like unto God, under God. So it brings up a clause or a statement or a phrase that Paul was telling you about in Romans 12. He says, don't have personal revenge. Don't settle your own score. And you think he's only going to say, for God will do it. God's the avenger. Vindicated by God. But I want you to not forget that it's saying government will avenge. It's going to tell you in his idea of you don't have to defend yourself of being a punisher of evil. But government will do it for you. The beauty of what this is saying is if somebody does me wrong, I don't have to go out and take judgment on them. Like if somebody murders someone in somebody's family, you don't have to go out and kill the person that murdered. You don't have to do it by your own hand. That actually government is set up by laws to give that person a fair treatment and government will avenge you. Government is in the hands of God. Its purpose is to run interference, to prevent it from happening to you, But should it slip through, should the enemy slip through, government stands there to punish those that have earned punishment. Based upon a God who will in the final days give the wicked what they have earned. That's called justice. So it's unique to see the ideal of you punishing other people being taken out of your hands and you give them love. 
while the government will give them law and God will one day give them accountability. So, as all things in this passage, the choice is not forced upon you. It is in your heart whether you will submit or not to government. If you want to play the fool and be rebellious, be a rebellious citizen, it is not forced on you. This passage asks you from your heart, will you submit to God's institution of government? And in submitting, sometimes the reason (laughs) that I do what I do, the reason I get involved is to clean up something that is corrupt. That is the reason why it compels you at times to move forward, especially in our government. In other governments, it tells you to pray. But in our government, you can actually take a place. You should take a place to be able to bring about what God says here. So, in here, what's odd about the word authorities here in the Greek is a plural form of authorities. Now, I'm going to make a little joke. Everywhere else that it's used for authorities in the plural sense, it's translated principalities and powers. (laughs) So to me, it's kind of humorous that the word for government is a principality and power. (laughs) Uh So the obligation to submit is a broader concept than the idea of submission to government, but merely one form of it, as some... Some say there's a principality thing. So, if you were being pressed upon, what does government do? Well, it brings order to the handling of money (laughs) and law. Jesus recognized the money aspect of it. So, I would tell you that both money and law are not inherently evil. They're neutral. But they're intended to work for your good. I want you to hear this next step, though. But if they're put in the wrong place, if second things become first, if money and legalism become first, if money and the new laws and the enforcement of law are abused and they become idolatrous, they become greedy and they take you captive and they're controlling. But thank goodness God does not remove himself from government but is involved in it. That we cannot separate God out of government. He's telling you no matter how hard you shall try, to create a government on this earth. How hard the Communist Party tries to say God is not a part. God is involved in their government. And it will go one way or the other. But government is trying to raise itself above God. And that's when you begin to have problems. In the area of economy, money, and in the area of law. Now verse 2 That's verse 1, but verse 2, it has a phrase that I'm sure you've heard in our English language. Well, you know, the powers that be. The powers that be down at the courthouse. (laughs) The powers that be at City Hall. It's an English expression we use. Did you know it was coined by William Tyndale? And he started out verse 2, and when he interpreted it, I love the way that he said it. He called it the powers that be. So much of what we say... So much of what we think is from the Bible. And we must remember of where that authority comes from. In verses 1 through 2, it says, Be subject, instituted, resist, appointed. And they all have the same root word in all four of those words that are in verse 2. Tagma. And 
all the four words in verses 1 and 2 that has this root word of tagma has one concept to it that's in unity every single time and it means the order of things bringing an ordering what government does for you is it orders life it brings order out of what would be a lot of tribal people (laughs) where you're trying to do your own defense of your house so you build yourself a little castle it's the reason why Texas said we'll join the order of the Union but if we ever want to withdraw our flag flies at the same level it's order and so what you see in verse 1 and 2 is the order of things but when the word submit is used it's telling you Paul could have used a different word that he used and that's obey he did not write obey your government he told you to submit it's a different concept. Submit is your heart. It's strength controlled. It's making yourself humble. It's a choosing to submit to a government ordered by God. Because Paul doesn't use the word obey, the believer may find it impossible to comply with every demand of the government. Obey. Completely different word. That's why you have men stand up and says the scripture does not teach to obey the government. Obey is for children and slaves. Submit is where you come up in strength and you add your strength to the order of things. Choosing authority as leadership to give you extra layers. So, the idea of submit is very interesting. And I think it dovetails quite well into a guy who I want you to consider what he says. John C-H-R-Y-S-O-S-T-O-M. John Christom. He was a thinker in 347 to 407. And the way he wrote it was Paul was talking about God ordaining the institution of government, not appointing leaders and rulers. According to him, the institution of government is ordained by God. Individual rulers may not be so ordained. Like you could have a government and not all the rulers are so ordained. But the institution itself is ordained by God. There is no authority except from God. He said that it refers to a collection of an institution of government rather than to individual rulers. So he uses analogy to make sure you understand it. He illustrates his reasoning with God instituted the institution of marriage just as he instituted government. But that does not mean that God personally puts every married couple together. (laughs) For we have seen many badly mismatched couples joined in lawful matrimony, and we would never attribute this state of things to God. (laughs) What do they say? They said, marriage is made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. So evidently in 347, he saw the same concept that I can say clearly to you that marriage is an institution with authority from God. And at the same time, your government is. It's like a collection of people. In marriage, it should be two. (laughs) And in government, it's a little bit larger of a collection. But within it, you find various exceptions, people that don't exactly have God going on in their life. But is the institution from the Lord? Yes. 
God ordained the institution of marriage, but not all married people have God's actions going on in their marriage. Not all governments do what God set them up to do. Now, Paul is going to give you a list of what government should do. Now, this particular scripture has gone from speaking to pagan nations to if you want to have a little bit of a twist on it, it's when Christians are deeply involved in government a couple of hundred years later when the law became you had to be Christian. (laughs) Where there was a Christian leader switching the language used by Paul to refer to political officials to powers and authorities fits better with the idea that authority can either be legitimate or illegitimate. So when they switched the concept of government being pagan to Christians being in government, no one ever thought there could be a Caesar that was a Christian. They had never had that enter their mind. But it's unique to use these principles in different ideas. Now they said that in interpreting this, one of the clearest things is the fact that this word not being a plural of powers, but switching the ideal to authority better fits the idea that authority can be either legitimate or illegitimate. But power, by contrast, either is or it's not. So the idea that Paul used the word nunamis is powers, and it's plural, it's not that word. Or the fact that Paul used the word authorities makes you understand better. It's not just this power up there ordained by God. But it's the idea of authority. Down through the ages, Christians have come up with the idea that they are submitting to the government. But it really is fear of the government. Christians hide behind this verse as a justification to compromise. And so when you don't want to do anything about your government and you're in compromise to what God's telling you to do and you hide behind this scripture we're pulling back the rug on this idea it is not submission it's fear and it's compromise but in verse 3 you're going to see something else that's unusual it gives you what rulers ought to do not a description of what they have been known to do This is not a true statement unless it is talking about good government. And they try to apply this statement to all government. In verse 3, Paul uses a different word for governmental authorities than he has in 1 and 2. This time he uses a word called rulers. Is Paul referring to God's ordaining the powers that be? And speaking of God's authority over angelic powers? Or invisible rulers? I mean, now you're looking at it going, wow. All right. When principalities and powers and uh, all these different concepts are being brought up, and it kind of startles you because you're thinking of Ephesians, and you're thinking of Ephesians 2 2, the prince of the power of the air. <laughs> Every single time you're looking at it, you're asking yourself, why suddenly, when Paul uses his exact words, is it talking about government, when the words have been used in other ways by Paul? The negative connotation that the words had. Well, I'm going to say, I think it's because it's a generic word. That it's neutral, much like money is neutral. That these words are neutral. Kind of like the word spirit can mean the Holy Spirit. It can mean the human spirit. And it can mean a demonic spirit. (laughs) 
That was funny. Okay, so the word spirit can be all the way down the board because the word itself is neutral. So you put the word holy in front of it or foul in front of it. And it tells you what kind of spirit. So I'm going to take the position that principalities and powers and rulers here is not talking about the invisible rulers or the angelic powers, but it is talking about the ordered nature of government. But I did point this out to you because you cannot miss the connotation that Paul is making. For the most part, principalities and powers use in Scripture has not been positive. And if you think principalities and powers is not positive, rulers are less so. If you think about that, the word rulers, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, as well as the use for rulers as demons in Matthew 9, 34, 10, 25, 12, 24, that ruler used by Jesus himself when he says of Satan, the ruler of this world has come and he has nothing in me. Ephesians 2, 2. So rulers has had a terrible reputation through scripture. It's also used of human rulers, not just demonic spirits, but even if Paul's not making a play on words or being humorous, he surely knew that invariably the negative connotation that the word rulers had in early Christianity and to readers that read it in the original language. Not only is rulers used of Satan and demons, but it's also used of those who rule over the nation and oppress them in Matthew 20, 25. It's used of these great figures of Herod and Pilate in their cooperation of the crucifixion of Jesus in Acts 4, 25, 28. It's the word rulers. Of the synagogue authorities in Luke 8, 41, Luke 12, 51. And of the Sanhedrin in Luke 23, 13, 24, 20. And of the Jewish and Gentile leaders on being hostile to the apostles in Acts 14, 5. Uh... Rulers are not batting a very high score right here in biblical text. So in this concept of rulers, what does he mean by them? It has meant spirits. It's meant human rulers. But it has never pulled into uh, <laughs> them doing the right thing. But notice what Paul does. In verse 3, he tells you, you are not to have a fear of these rulers. You should not have a fear of government. The very thing that people are using in 1 and 2 to fear government and to hide behind the verses, in verse 3, Paul is saying, honestly, you should have no fear of your government. None. How we manage to quote just the first four words and do not go into what Paul tells you in verse 3, that there should be no terror of government. If your government brings terror and fear to you, it has ceased to be a government of God. That's right. Or acknowledges God. Thus all people receive from God rulers suited to their needs. This is the mirror idea. One early church father, he said, rulers are for the correction and the benefit of their subjects and justice. A fear and punishment and rebuke for some. For others, the subjects deserve a different sort of government. For their mockery, their insolence, and their pride. While the just judgment of God passes equally upon all. So the interpretation of this 
is your governments act like a mirror to you according to your behavior. This is a government you're not afraid of. It's a just government. Notice what it says. Do what is good and you shall have praise of him. When government ceases to be good, it ceases to be government. Do what is good and you will have praise of him. You know, I think, is government praising me right now? Is it giving me its approval? (laughs) Is it giving Christians the approval that they deserve for doing good? Oh, woe be it. We have entered into the time of abomination where God says it's an abomination to call good evil and evil good. So you see here in verse 3 that Paul pulls it all together with delegated human authority and he says... That government is to cause you no fear and no terror, but even the opposite, it should be approval. It shall give you praise because you do the right thing. Like it will give you an honorary award. It will tell you you're noble. You've done the right thing. You're a good citizen. And we thank you for how much your service has meant to us. We've lost it. We've lost our heroes and we've lost what government is supposed to do. Government should give you approval being good and verse 4 it tells you the words that we so believe that government is a servant to God this is where it pulls together what we said in 1 and 2 that government is not above God government is not allowed to act without God but Paul calls it as it is in verse 4 government is the servant to God government is not a master It is not allowed to tell you and dictate to you as a master what to do. Government is a servant. For it is God's servant. Notice this, they said this in the German, that the endings of words, you know how they have the masculine or feminine to it? The quotation is, for she is God's maidservant for you for good. Government is a maidservant. It didn't even get the male ideal of servant. It's a maidservant for your good. And it said, should the Germans have listened to their own verse? If the Germans had listened to Martin Luther and resisted, it would have been a different Germany. For Romans 13 is a yardstick. You have a scriptural basis of what government should do. But the government people are supposed to work for your good. They are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. They're not supposed to be a terror to you. But notice this. Government was made to terrorize corruption, wickedness, evil, bad conduct. Is your government being a terror to those who do evil? That's good government. They're supposed to cause fear. If you have a town that has the fear of the Lord in it and the fear of God... They will be afraid to do evil. They will be in terror. But if you have a city who bumps fist, and it's the good old boys, everybody does their evil together, hopefully God won't see it as a collection, you have lost government. You are no longer doing what government said. For the key to understanding is the servant to you for good. No turning of the head or ignoring it or allowing evil. Or God forbid, even causing evil. This is where it is literally 
that the ruler of God is a servant to you for good. Do you know what the key word is taking into consideration what the root word is in the first two verses? Government is to provide you stability, order. It is to provide you stability so that you can do your work of the kingdom. And that is the cause of government, to give you something over you, to provide natural stability in a chaotic world. Government's job is to keep it in a peaceful, stable order so we can do our job. So if government is not good, it is not authority. If government is not good, it is not government. Submitting to Hitler on this scripture is baloney. You cannot stand judgment and tell God, I did what Hitler told me to do of killing babies because I obeyed government. You did not obey government. You obeyed the fool. You obeyed a demonic force. You did not obey God's government. If it is not good, it is not what Paul is talking about. This verse tells you the way you want to maintain stability in your city, in your state, in your nation, is to do what he's telling you. Make evil people in terror of doing wrong. And make good people praised and approved. And then it says, would you like to guess, without looking at the scripture, how do you carry this out? How do you make them terrorized? What is the way that Paul recommends to terrorize them? You want to make a guess on it? Well, let's just put it in our modern local language. It means open carry season. <laughs> Paul says the way you have good government is government has a sword. Oh my lands. He has a sword to execute his wrath on a wrongdoer. The state maintains stability by restraining those who do wrong. Going back to verse 2, those who disrupt the social order. If they're resisting godly authority, what do they earn themselves? Not time out. Not prison. A sword. Fines, imprisonment. Government takes the next step of declaring war. And here we see capital punishment. The death penalty. It bears the sword. Don't think it bears the sword for nothing. Jesus even talked about kings going to war. Does an armed city ruler scare you? Think of someone in the city. Seeing him armed, does it scare you? If it scares you, then you've got the wrong people in office. If your people, if you saw the city officials all suddenly running out with swords, who do you think they'll kill? You or the wrongdoer? If they're armed and you're scared, you don't have government. You have chaos. Would you rather see a sword in the hand of Biden or Trump? Who would be better with the sword? There's a relationship between ruled and rulers here. But for the most part, Paul is talking to the ruled people. But I'm going to apply it to rulers. Those government leaders who are doing wrong deserve a double sword. Because they are responsible not only for the people, but for multitudes of people. So verse 5, you see two motives here of Colburn. The negative one, 
Do good so you avoid wrath. And it points to a positive reason for doing it for the sake of your conscience. You must be subject for the sake of principle. You know, it gets tricky when government becomes a mixture of right and wrong. That's why Jesus spoke to rulers and powers and authority of his day. And he said, do what they tell you to do. That, observe and do. But do not do what they do. For they tell you to do what they don't do. And that is mixed government. They say one thing for you, and they do another thing for them. So, when Paul tells you not to resist, in what areas? Does he tell you not to resist when they're killing the babies? Does he tell you not to resist when they're teaching your kids pornography in school? Does he tell you not to resist? When does he tell you not to resist? I might, if I was doing the sermon, I might say, don't cheat on your taxes. Pay your taxes. Don't road hunt. (laughs) I'm just saying there's basic things. Don't shoot on someone else's property. (laughs) He's telling you the state needs resources in order to function. His idea of not resisting, he's speaking to Jews. Pay your taxes. Isn't that hilarious? That is obedience to government. Pay your taxes. Give them what Caesar gets. And how we could make it killing babies. How we could make it a betraying neighbors in World War II. How we could make it a betraying our own conscience and betraying good people. How, my friend, do we not read Scripture? You cannot twist this Scripture to mean something else. It is compromise and fear and the nature of the devil any other way. But alas, Paul is Jewish. And though he has told you to pay taxes in verse 7, you have to admire his cleverness. When he adds in one little thing, uh, give them what's due. In other words, verse 7 tells you get a good tax accountant. (laughs) Take your your legal breaks. (laughs) I'll tell my tax accountant, I see you in verse 7. I don't have to give them what's not due. I only have to give them what's due. And somewhere between the comma and the rest of the verse is $1 trillion in, in tax increases where they hike up our taxes. You think of all the exorbitant craziness of paying for things that we should not have to pay for. And we did a Boston Tea Party for England thinking they owned the new country that God had given us. And we sit still and do nothing about our taxes when this is going on, when we're taxed from property to... (laughs) Yes. So, the concept behind it now, Paul goes right back to what he was talking on. Love, 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 love. And he tells you, and the love welcomes the weak. It's the righteousness, the principles. It's the most powerful motivator. It regulates everything. Love enables the weak people to become strong. So, Paul... Would you tell me how to act when the government comes? How do I do this obeying the government, submitting to rulers? How should this look on me, Paul? Paul says, okay, I'll show you. Turn to Acts 23. And so let's look at Paul in motion here as he obeys his rulers. 
Paul looked straight at the rulers and said, My brothers, I have to fulfill my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to them, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. I see the submission, the heart, <laughs> the ability <laughs> to suffer with the wrong. <laughs> you sit there and judge me according to the law, and you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Sweet Paul has given us such wise words to deal. All he was done was struck. How about if they were carting off his family? How would Paul react? Those standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul said, I did not realize he was a high priest. Because there's a verse, I remember it now, don't speak evil about the ruler of your people. But Paul thought about it. And then he goes undercurrent. He knew there were Sadducees and Pharisees that disagreed. And so he screams, My brother, I'm a Pharisee. I come from a long line of Pharisees, and I stand on trial for, for one thing of hope and resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, he knew what would happen. A dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he got the enemies biting each other and divided. So the Sadducee says there's no resurrection, neither are there spirits, but the Pharisees believe all things, and there became such an uproar that some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And the dispute became so violent, because they were happy he was on their side, that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by this argument he started. And he ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force and bring him to the barracks. May God add the blessing of the reading of the verses. Put your hand over your heart. We must submit to those our rulers and authorities and powers that have created government for our good so that we can get our job done and do the will of our Father. Amen.